We finished our series, um, Joyful Expectation. We've got a new series starting next week, Spiritual Conversations. Um, very excited about this new series coming up. It's a very hands-on kind of series. Um, how do you have conversations uh, with people who don't believe the same way that you do? There are, there are little, little things that you can do, little things that you can be aware of to have really productive, safe conversations where you don't end up angry at each other. Um, so I'm very excited about this series. Uh, try not to miss any of it. Every week we're going to be getting some real hands-on practical help in, in how do we share our faith in, in a world that is incredibly divided. Um, not, not just, just divided, but uh, different, right? We're not in a homogenous situation anymore. We're not all the same our country is, is very, a lot of different people from a lot of different parts of the world with a lot of different beliefs. So this is going to be a really a fun series. Um, um, pray for this series. Pray for the, the fact that you can be here and, and catch everything. Uh, but this morning is going to be a kind of a standalone, kind of wanted to talk about New Year's um, resolutions. Um, I'm deciding I don't want to talk about resolutions. I was going to leave it up to Douglas. He blew it, so I'm just not even going to touch it. It just seems to be bad luck. Um, and, and I know for a fact that some people go the resolution route, which is we all recognize that's the difficult route, right? That's the route where you got to do the work, right? You're going to lose the weight. You're going to get healthy. You're going to get more financially stable. You're going to treat your employees better. You're going to, you know, whatever, whatever it is. The res- it's, it's deciding to take the, the hard route, um, this morning, let's just play around with that just a little bit. Let's just play with maybe the easy route. How many of you, well, don't, uh, this is mean, don't raise your hand. I was going to ask how many of you have been praying that you would win the lottery. Just, just, just don't. It, it's, it's been in the news. I, I saw hands almost. I, I kind of think that um, I stopped praying for the lottery a long time ago because I know myself. I'm not good with money. Um, if it's in my hands, it's there to be spent, wasted. That's right. I, I have incredible credit rating because I married Diane early in my spending career. Um, I could tell you stories of my spending early in our marriage, and you would think, wow, what an idiot. Um, and you would be right. Uh, but yeah, you know, the lottery or, or resolutions. Let, let's start with the lottery this morning. What if, what if, what if, let's just play that game. What if, what if you won the lottery? Right? I know you've thought about it. Maybe you didn't pray for it, but I know you thought about it. What, what would you do? What would you do if you won the lottery? A lot of pay, the, the, this is the answers that I, I hear. You know, I'll give a bunch to God. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll give to my alma mater. I'll give to you know, Wounded Warriors, um, St. Jude's. Right? If you've been at home watching a whole lot of TV this past two weeks, I think St. Jude very wisely puts all their commercials, all of their bang in that two weeks. So I've spent two weeks just crying, just, just crying, which is hard on my stomach. It's just tear-jerking commercials, no end to them. Um, but an incredible organization, what they do. Um, but people, oh, yeah, I would give this. <clears throat> I would give this to that and that to this. And, and there's always God. God's right up at the top. I would, I would give God. Here's the reality of the situation. And I don't know if... It would be, if it's that different from if you had won the lottery, my guess is it's going to probably shake out to be the same percentage. Whether you have a lot or you have a little, 
we all have our attitudes toward money and, and, and those attitudes play out whether you're getting a tiny paycheck or you're getting a lottery paycheck. Here, here's the reality. Non-believers average, this is across the board, they give to non-charity, their churches, whatever, 1% to 2% of their income on average. That's, that's a study. Believers, what do you think? I, I would hope, because there's a biblical concept that there's a little bit of argument, a little debate about, called the tithe. We, we would hope that followers of Jesus Christ would at least, whether they, they followed the tithe as law or they just decided this is a great biblical guideline, um, 10%. But no, believers, 4% on average. They claim 10%, but they did the math, and it was 4%. You know, they say pastors got bad math. Bad math. <laughs> Believers got the same bad math. You know, and I get it. The human condition is haunted by the fear of scarcity, right? We're always, we always got that on our mind. Will there be enough? If I decide to give this chunk a change that I've been kind of holding on to, if I give it away, what if I have a need? Like you face that all the time, guys in the garage. What if I throw this thing away? Tomorrow you know what you're going to need, right? You're going to need that stupid piece of pipe Right? They just look like trash sitting in the corner forever. You throw it out, and tomorrow you need it. And that's kind of the way we are with our money, isn't it? Our, you know, our possessions. Well, I could give this to you. I could give this to that guy. But in 10 minutes, I might be cold. Right? I, I don't want to risk that. So the cold person suffers. We fear there will be not enough because generosity, it, it's a risky venture. Right, can we afford to be generous? I want to start, I want to share an incident with Jesus. Jesus related in Luke chapter 12. Two guys arguing about money. Chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, it says this, And he told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. You notice he's, he's already rich. I want to make that out, point that out. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Again, he's already rich. And again, I'm not asking anybody to identify with this guy just yet, but we all kind of face the same question, right? Lottery winner or not, what do we do with the money coming in? What do I do, more importantly, more to the point, what do I do when I already have enough and there's a windfall? Can I afford to be generous? Will there be enough left over for later? Continue, verse 18, it says this. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns. And I will build bigger barns, and there I will store my surplus grain. You know, it's interesting, a booming business, and we know this because we've sold our land, I think, twice to this booming business. You know what it is? Storing our junk that we don't have enough room in our houses to store, so we go and pay storage units to store even more of our junk. It just strikes me as funny. That's not the point of the message. Let me continue. All right? And there I will store my surplus grain, verse 19. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many, many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Two things that we can say about this man. First thing, he had no thought about anyone but himself, right? You, you see this. 
I mean, if we were to read between the lines, it doesn't say that, but you get this impression just seeing his thought process. You don't see it. Golly, I wonder if anybody needed some of this surplus that I have. The thought apparently doesn't enter his head. The only thought that enters his head is, where am I going to store all of this stuff that I don't need? Right? I, I even got stuff right now that I don't need, and now I just got another, another big truckload of what I don't need. Got to build a better barn because I might need this one day. I might need this. Second thought passes through my head. He has no thought beyond this world. His plans were made for only this world, this lifetime. And God's thoughts on the subject, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, again, it's not that God is punishing him, I don't think, by demanding his life. You know, you, weren't, you were selfish because we would be in a world of hurt if that's the way God rolled, right? Whoo-wee, thank you, Lord. Again, it's not that God is punishing him by demanding his life. It's just simply his time to go, right, tonight. It's your time, right? The indictment against him and the proof of his spiritual condition is that he was was only rich toward himself, and he wasn't rich towards God. So we just kind of want to pause for a moment and just evaluate your own life. Are you rich only toward yourself and your family and your loved ones? Compared to how rich are you towards God, does he get the leftover, right? This is how Jesus summed it up. Verse 21, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards heaven. You're not going to get to spend everything that you saved up for yourself. That's Barn builder has a choice just like we all do. We all have a choice to trust God or to trust our money, our possessions. And what we do with our money, you know, our, our spending habits, our priorities reflect that choice. I remember uh, John Maxwell was listening to a tape of him a long, long time ago. He says he could walk into anybody's church, he could walk into your home, and then in 10 minutes, he could tell you, he could could make a list. I, I I could list out your priorities. I know what's important to you, and I know what's not important to you. All I need to do is look at your bank account, your your bank book. What are you cutting checks for? I can walk into your church and I can tell, do you care for the loss? I, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just look at how you spend your money. I'll, I'll know immediately. I'll know the condition of your heart simply by looking at your checkbook. It's like, ouch. And our spending is reflected in what's called the G3M ratio. I know you've never heard of that because I made it up two days ago. The G3M ratio is God's mission to my mission ratio. What is your ratio in your spending, right? What do you give to God's mission and what do you give to your mission? What's the ratio? You can do percentages. We're all good in math here. We're all engineers, I think, from what I've been told, right? We, this, is, this is easy. You don't need to pull out a calculator, right? Just move a decimal point over and you, you got your percentages, right? Anyway, that, that's, that's not the point of the sermon. That was just that was dumb. Taken together, though, our spending habits, what we spend on, our priorities, they are a direct indicator not of our financial situation, not of our financial condition, but of our spiritual condition. Because I promise you, 
If you see the way I spend money, it, is not a, it does not reflect my financial situation because I don't know my financial situation. Diane does. I, man, I'm, I'm talking too much about that. You've seen people, and you've seen their spending habits, and you know that it does not reflect their financial situation because you know they're flat broke, and they're always asking for help and assistance. And uh, what we spend does not reflect our financial condition. It's, it truly does reflect our heart's condition, our spiritual condition. And again, many folks will argue with that statement, right? I give my time. I, I pray. I give up my, my beat-up leftovers. I give them to goodwill and... You know, the cans of green beans I give to Tri-City Food Bank. And, I, you know, I, oh, right? Now, listen, those are all good things. I made, them, I, I made them sound not so good, but those are all beautiful things that should not be neglected. We should be caring for, we shouldn't be giving, we shouldn't be giving our beat-up leftovers to goodwill. We, maybe some better stuff, right? The, the cruddy stuff, send it to the dump. It's, but here's the fact. Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than anything else. More than heaven and hell combined. Like lots more. Like, I mean, if you were to skim really quickly, you would think, wow, Jesus talks a lot about money, a lot about possessions. And I know people, if a pastor talks about it a couple times a year, like, oh, what kind of pastor do we get? He's always asking for money. I'm just following Jesus' lead here. He talks a lot about money. Here's just a few examples. I'm, I'm just going to kind of fly through a few examples of just how often that Jesus talks about money. This is from Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is preaching to the, cra- <coughs> preaching to the crowds, and three different groups of people ask what they should do. Now, listen very carefully. What they should do to exhibit spiritual fruit in their lives, right? The fruit of spiritual redemption, Right? What should we do to, to, to prove and to demonstrate that, that our hearts have been transformed? Right? John gives three different answers to three different groups of people. Listen to this. To the crowd. He says everyone should share their clothes and food with the poor. Right? That, that was just to the crowd. And there were a bunch of tax collectors there too. And he tells them, don't pocket extra money. Right? And to the soldiers, they were there asking too. Be content with your wages and don't extort money, which is what they were known to do. You notice that every answer relates to money and possessions, but nobody asked John about money and possessions. They asked about their spiritual condition, the transformation of their heart. They weren't talking about money and possessions, but that's all John could answer. Right? They asked what they should do to demonstrate the fruit of spiritual transformation. So why didn't John talk about all that other stuff? Things like meditating and classes at the local synagogue, spiritual pilgrimages, studying Torah more, leaving the world behind and hanging out with him in the desert eating grasshoppers. I mean, he could have talked about a lot of different things, but he didn't mention any of those things. He just talked about money and possessions, money and possessions. That's because John saw a connection. I think a lot of us miss for whatever reason. Maybe we don't want to see it. Maybe it's just uncomfortable. Our attitude towards money and possession isn't just important. It's central to our spiritual condition. Our attitude towards our money and our possessions isn't just important. It is central to our spiritual condition. John simply couldn't talk about spirituality without talking about how we handle money and possessions. A couple other passages in Luke. We have the story of the tax collector Zacchaeus. 
right? Jesus goes to the crowd. Zacchaeus gets up in a tree. He wants to hear the good news. He had heard about this Jesus who could change people's lives, and Zacchaeus had money. He had possessions, but he was missing something, and he accepted the Lord's invitation to his house, and the crowd doubted him, and this is what he says to that doubting crowd. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, right off the top, no distinctions, just half of what I own right off, boom, goes to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I personally will pay back four times that amount. And Jesus replies, today salvation has come to this house. See, Zacchaeus' radical new attitude toward money demonstrated that his spiritual condition had been transformed. It wasn't, wow, he sure meditates a lot. Boy, he sure prays a lot. Boy, he attends church every single Sunday. Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. All those, all those kind of things that we tend to think, wow, spiritual giant, spiritual warrior. It was money. What was he doing with his money? What would happen? I just thought, just occurred to me, I don't want to see it happen. I'm just saying, what if we were to open up all of our checkbooks and let everybody examine how we're spending? That would be scary. Let's just move on. Oh, my goodness. Then there are the Jerusalem converts, right, who eagerly sold their possessions and they gave to the needy in Acts chapter 2. And the Ephesians, the magicians from Ephesus, thank you, who proved their conversion was authentic when they sold all of their magic books that were worth apparently quite a bit of money, right, in Acts chapter, what is it, 19, and then the poor widow offering her last two coins. And Jesus says this about her. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And in stark contrast, we have our barn builder, right? A rich young ruler searching for the key to life in the next age. Two different people, by the way. It sounded like they're the same. Two different people. Jesus told the rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. See, the man was obsessed with earthly treasures, but Jesus called him something, something much higher, heavenly treasures. See, Jesus knew that money and possessions were the man's God, and that man wouldn't serve God unless he dethroned the money idol. And again, we kind of got to pause for just a moment. I know we don't like pointing at ourselves, but I think every person in this room, every person hearing my voice needs to ask, have, we, have I made money my idol? Is it the most important thing in my life? Does everything revolve around the money? Right? Money is important. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's important in our culture. It's important. But again, why did Jesus put such an emphasis on money and possessions? Does God need our money? No. Right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Psalm, Psalm 42 says that everything in the, in the earth is his. Everything in the earth, all who are in the earth are all. He owns everything, everything. No, he doesn't need our money, but he needs our wholehearted commitment if we're to really, truly enjoy everything that Christ has to offer us, money will get in the way. 
Now, it doesn't have to get in the way. Let's just, just hang on tight here. See, God knows there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle our money, right? We may try to divorce our faith from our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. So back to our foolish barn builder from Luke chapter 12. Already wealthy, and suddenly he's got lots more, right? So we know what he did, right? No, no thought towards anybody else, God's mission or eternity, just, right, am I going to enjoy tomorrow? Will I eat, drink, and be married tomorrow? That only thing. So God asked the barn builder of a strange question. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Right? Let's just kind of ran this through my head. If you left no will, then the government's going to get it all. Or the government's going to tell him how to disperse it. Who's going to get what? Right? If he left no will. If you haven't got your will, it's time to, time to parent, right? Diane and I did it just recently, so y'all can do it too. If he left a will making his kids rich without having earned it or without really understanding where that money came from, more than likely, not automatic, if we read the news though, more than likely it's going to ruin his kids' lives. They will not understand where that money came from, what to do with it, how, how it needs to be handled it was just, blah, just this ton of money. He also could have left a will, leaving in a reasonable amount to his family. Maybe give the rest to the church. Does that sound like a good plan? I would say no. Because he missed out on the joy of giving. Right? He missed out on the joy of helping somebody's life be transformed with resources that he had worked hard for and that he was willing to let go of. He lost that joy. He just decided, well, when I died then, right? Just kind of a word of caution. If you're waiting till you die, you're going to miss out on all the joy. Fast forward a couple thousand years to about five or six years ago, 2017 to be exact. There's an NFL quarterback. He's in the news a lot right now um, because he didn't do so well. Looking for another team apparently. Y'all know about quarterback Derek Carr. He faced a similar situation to the barn builder, five or six years ago, 2017, gets a 20, $125 million contract. Being, I understand at that point, making him the richest NFL player in history. Hope that's accurate. What to do, what to do, $125 million. Here's what Greg Carr does. This is, this is, this is what's reported. First thing I will do is pay my tithe like I have since I was in college, getting a $700 check, on a, getting $700 on a scholarship check, right? $70, boom, tithe. See, that won't change, right? Right off the top, that's his decision, smart guy. Now watch, this is what gets me though. <clears throat> Catch what excites him the most after he tithes, right? So he's going to tithe $1.25 million. And I was living in the Bay Area at this time, <clears throat> And I, I bring this up. It's not a good thing for churches, but I know this happened. Apparently, every church in Oakland uh, contacted him and said, hey, that tithe money. This is what I heard. I don't know. I don't know. But here's the point, right? What did he do with the, what was his plan for the rest of the money, right? $112.5 million. What's he going to do with the rest of the money? He says this. He says this. The exciting thing for me, and again, he's talking about after he tithes. I just want to make that clear. The exciting thing for me, money-wise, honestly, is that this money is going to help a lot of people. 
I'm very thankful to have it in our hands because it's going to help people not only in this country but in a lot of countries around the world. That's what's exciting to me. Now, I did not follow this up. I do not know if he actually did this. I have a feeling he did. Started a foundation. A lot of players do this. It's a a fantastic thing. Um, But it, it, it brings the question back to us, right? What do we do with the rest? If we decided to tithe, and this is a message a little bit about tithing, but it's really a lot more than tithing, just tithing. The question is, what, are, what about the rest, the, the, the 90%? Right? Is, is the deal, is the way we look at it, then that's mine. I'll give God his cut, right? The way we say it. I heard somebody once say, Oh, they use a funny phrase. I can't remember it now, but, but God's cut. He gets a 10%. And then we kind of decided that 90%, we can do anything we want because the 10% that went to God covered whatever stupid things I'm going to do with the 90%. Like I get automatic forgiveness up front if I give you 10% first and if you just let me be stupid with the rest of the 90. I don't think that's God's plan. I, I, I really don't think. I think it's a great My wife doesn't think. I think it's a great plan. I'm going to give you some advice. I'm not going to give you some advice. You don't want to get financial advice from me. I'm going to give you two straight from the creator. This is, this is from God's son, all right? Best financial advice you'll ever receive. What to do after you've decided, I think wisely, to tithe 10% to God's mission. What do you do with the rest, the 90%? Whether it's $112.5 million or it's just $112. I don't know where you are. I don't know how much you haven't shown me your bank account. So, you know, I don't know. But here, here's the best, the best financial advice you'll ever get. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, it says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and destroy. Why not? Not because earthly treasures are bad. I, I hope it, it's, it's tough to see, but as, as, as the passage continues, you very quickly see he's not against earthly treasures. He's not against, he's not against treasures. Let me put it that way. He's not against treasures at all. And I've known a few people who handled their money wisely. They did not let it get to them. They gave a lot. They continue to give a lot. Those people impressed me. I would have a hard time being that person. That's why I don't pray for the lottery. I know I don't handle money well. You're very happy you have a financial committee that handles your money. Why not treasures on earth? It's because they won't last, right? We know this. I can tell you so many Christmas stories. My Christmas presents didn't last until noon Christmas Day. They were already destroyed. I can count on my hand right now in my head. Four different Christmas gifts were destroyed by noon Christmas Day. Destroyed. Because that's what me and my brother did. We destroyed stuff. I don't know what my parents were thinking buying these silly things for us. Richest guy that ever lived said this, said this about riches. <clears throat> This is from Proverbs chapter 23. We're, we're assuming this is King Solomon, richest, smartest guy ever. Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Great picture, right? Next to shopping spree, imagine your prized possession sprouting wings and flying off because you know that's what's going to happen. Or you're going to get home and they're not going to fit. <laughs> Either way. 
Now look at this. Listen to this. Imagine living in the South near the end of the Civil War. Right? Just kind of get your head into the right place here. Living in the South near the end of the Civil War, right? We don't need any history lessons. We all know what that's about. And you're holding on to a whole lot of Confederate currency, right? What to do, what to do. You got a lot of it. You got a lot of it. You're, you're doing pretty good. But you caught what I said at the beginning, right? To the very end of the Civil War, it's ending. And the South is going to lose, right? The North is going to win. What, what do you do? Well, if you're smart, Right? If you're smart, you converted all of this, con- this Confederate currency into U.S. currency, and you're keeping just enough for your short-term needs. Right? You got a few months. You might have a year left. You, you're still living in the South. That money still has value. Like I said before, money has value, but in its time and place. It's not in all times and places that it has value. You're stuck on a desert island. I don't care how rich you are. It's not going to matter. That coconut, it's, it's, the, it's the coconut sitting there. Buy it for a buck or a million dollars. It just doesn't matter. When Jesus returns and we, or, or when you die, your earthly currency will be worthless. Whatever you saved up, yes, you know, pass it on. That, that's important. Here's what Jesus suggests. Verse 20. <clears throat> But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, if we had stopped at verse 19, right, we would have concluded that Jesus was again storing up all treasures for ourselves. He's not. That's wrong, right? In fact, he's all for it. In fact, he commands it. He's just saying stop storing it in the wrong place, right? Stop investing in worthless currency and start investing in kingdom currency, so what should we be investing in, right? How should we be using, if we look at it right, and I, I'm going to say this very carefully, if we look at it right, how are we going to spend God's money that currently resides in our bank account, right? Because this earth, you, you, I think you caught that. I, I think we know this intuitively. It's not ours, right? We're called to be stewards of it. It's not like God died and said, ah, oh, here, the earth is yours. We were not bequeathed the earth. Right? We, were, we were called in Genesis 1 and 2 to be stewards, to take care of it, to invest wisely. So think back to Derek Carr's words. He was excited at the joy of giving. Right? He was clearly speaking from experience. See, he had done this before. He discovered something that feels kind of counterintuitive at first. But I promise you, if you do this, you will experience the exact same thing. Helps us to be great stewards. The more we give, the more we delight in our giving. Right before I even go any further, the more we give, the more we delight in our giving. And the more God delights in us. It is a rush. It is a rush to help somebody. It it just is. And it's like, I want to feel that again. And, And you start doing it again, and it becomes a habit. And you just start looking around. How can I help people around me? How how can I do this? It's a rush. It's a rush. Our giving pleases us. More importantly, it pleases God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Love that phrase. That doesn't mean that we should only give when we're cheerful, though. You're thinking, oh, I'm off the hook today because I'm not happy today. People got me out of bed on New Year's Day. The cheerfulness comes after the act of obedience, not so much before, right? Before, it's like, ah. 
but you just give and watch the joy that follows. The Macedonians, they totally got it. In Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul speaks of a poverty-stricken Macedonian church. It says this in 2 Corinthians verse 2 and 3, chapter 8. It says, in the midst of a very severe trial that they were having in Jerusalem, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty, get those two, overflowing joy and extreme poverty, they went hand in hand. And we think in our world those two things can't go in hand, and that must be a typo. There's something wrong with that phrase because that doesn't ring true. But if you've never been without, you probably don't have any idea what, what they're talking about. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They weren't guilting into it. No pastor standing up there <laughs> reading select Bible passages and hope, hope, hoping people get it, right? They didn't give stubbornly. They didn't give miserly. Why? because they understood what it was like to be without. See, lots of folks have never been without, I mean, if we're really honest. And so they can't conceive of what it's like to be without. And, and, I, and I know, I don't know how the process works, but it, 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 you watch it happen. If we believe or if we can't conceive of somebody being without, then when we see somebody without, we come to a couple of conclusions. Well, it's, that's not normal. It must be their fault. It must have done something dumb. Maybe, maybe not. The point of the, they're hurting now. They're without now. Or they've been without. And again, we conclude it must be their fault, something they're doing wrong. Listen to this next verse. Concluding verse from 2 Corinthians. Entirely on their own, they pleaded, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Why did they have to plead? Apparently somebody told them, well, if you're poor, you don't need to give. God's not concerned, right? If you're poor, you don't have any risk of, of going spiritually astray. Like somehow money, we read that verse, money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It's the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all kinds of all evil. That's, our, that's going on in our hearts. Money just adds to it. It just makes it, the situation a little bit worse. So maybe this morning, maybe you're in the group needing another barn, right? You have so much stuff that you are seriously contemplating renting a storage facility, building another barn, Maybe you're in the group that are just, just struggling to get by, right? All this talk about millions of dollars is just gibberish, right? Inconceivable in your situation from what you've seen, what you've experienced maybe, maybe at home. Maybe you believe that no one can do what De Derek Carr has been doing, but that's just not the truth. The fact of the matter is we can all tithe. Tithing is God's plan for everybody, right? It's not getting the lottery. Remember, we talked about it at the beginning. We can either choose to, to, to do the route of the lottery or we can choose the difficult route, the route that will transform us from the inside out, the long route. And that's tithing. 
10%, it's automatic, it's proportional. And I understand, I get it, that for some folks, right, sacrificing at 5% will be a far greater sacrifice than some people. They could give 90% and they still wouldn't be sacrificing. I, I understand that. Lots of opinions, thoughts on tithing, right? Jesus never mentioned tithing. Not true, he does. Take a look at Matthew chapter 23. It says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, and, and cumin. Tenth was the tithe, right? But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and a lot of people will also say, well, you know, Old Testament law is not required of New Testament Christians. Technically not true. We're not judged by the law any longer, but it's definitely still our guide in living in everything that we do and say. The law still is our guide. So whether you believe it to be mandatory or not, biblically speaking, 10% seems to be a pretty good place to at least start the conversation. I really don't want to start it at 1% or 2%. I don't think you do too. That's just embarrassing. We're better than that. So I want to issue this morning a challenge. I told you that I would challenge you this morning. I've spoken with our board, our finance committee, and I want to issue what's called a tithe challenge. We operate on tithes. It's called storehouse tithing. Um, I've shared this before. We help a lot of people in this community. On a weekly basis, we help a lot of people. You come into our office, and you'll see somebody that I'm talking with because they're in need. And because you tithe faithfully, I'm able to help these people. I don't make them feel bad. I don't judge them. And they go away, I think, rather thrilled. So we, we can do this because we have tithers. The tithe challenge is this. It's January 1st. Great time to start something new. If you start tithing at 10%, you can decide, I don't really care, net gross. You work that all out, just, just 10%. And at any point in this next calendar year, you decide, this is stupid. Jerry tricked me. They just wanted my money. Now they're wasting it. I want my money back. We'll give you your money back. All right? This is our tithe challenge to you. If you are currently not tithing and you're thinking, I'd like to give it a try. One of the few things that God challenges us, says, test me on this. Go ahead. Test me. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to test them. If you haven't been tithing, it, it, it would help us out if, if on that little yellow card or with your first tithe check that you say, hey, this is a first for me. Pray for me, and we will pray for you. Now, listen, I want you to understand something. Don't be confused. I am not standing here saying that if you start tithing, your bank account is suddenly going to start growing. It's, it's not. <laughs> You're going to notice 10% missing right off the stop every single month. But here's what's going to happen in your life. Your heart is going to change. Your heart is going to be transformed. Right? Your grip on that money is just going to loosen just a little bit, and over time it's going to loosen more and more. And pretty soon you're not even going to think about it. It's just like, this is God's. I don't need to think about this. And here's what God is going to do in return. He's not probably going to get you that lottery ticket, the winning ticket. <laughs> I know you're thinking, 
Let's get to it, Jerry. Let's get to it. That's not it. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to probably make your life incredibly relationally rich, right? Because from up till now, and I, I, this is a judgment call, and I'm terribly sorry if I'm wrong, but the possibility exists that up till now, you're a little bit, little bit self-centered. Money's for me. Everything's for me, me, me. This whole tithe thing is going to kind of turn you inside out, right? And it's going to feel like you got turned inside out. Those first couple checks, you're going to look at it, and your friends are going to go, did you join a cult? What are you doing with all what? You just tell them, my pastor made me a deal, and I'm going to hold him to it. I'm going to trust God with my money, and I'm going to see what he does with my life, what he does with my heart. That's going to be the judgment. That's going to be the barometer of, of this whole giving thing. So I just want to, I want to stop now kind of conclude we're going we're gonna to share communion. But I want to stop and pray for us. If you're listening at home or you're in the building and, and you haven't been tithing and, and maybe you're thinking, what do I have to lose? Nothing. Just bow your heads, Father. You don't need our money. But to do your mission here on earth, money goes a long way. It, it's got its place. And it's got its purpose. And so, Father, this morning, help us get our heads and our hearts around the true value of money and what it's best used for. Father, I pray for every person the Holy Spirit is, is, is asking you right now, is this something you want to do? Do you, do you trust me? Father, every person having that conversation now, cover them with your Holy Spirit, take away the fear, and give them peace. Give them peace in this decision, Father. Father, I'm so thankful for every person who continues to give, who through faith promise through commitments to our family life, Pastor, through building funds, through all the different things that draw us toward you, Father. As we prepare to share communion, Father, we're reminded that you're a giver. You're a prodigal God you, you give ridiculously. <laughs> Father, you, you're our model. We need to give ridiculously. Father, you, you gave ultimately. Your son. Father, you, you call us to give ultimately to our, our, our lives living lives, living sacrifices. Father, that we would lay 100% of ourselves on that altar, our money, our possession, our time, our priorities. 
Father, we lay them on the altar this morning. 100% is yours. You give back what you want to give back. We trust you with this entire transaction. And Father, this morning, as we share communion, Father, help us to remember that in these, in these elements, in this, this wafer, in this little tiny cup of juice, is the example that we all need. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.